Welcome to the Upper Room Community Church Podcast. Wherever you are in your journey, we hope that this message will help you grow in your faith and provide practical ways to strengthen your relationships. To find out more, visit us at upperroom.ca. Good morning. My name is Serena, and I'll be reading the scripture today from Colossians 1, verses 15 to 23. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you to Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation, if you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is a gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. This is the word of the Lord. So what would you say if you were asked these strangers who became friends through signing a contract that says we could show their video uh, were surprised at the subway station in Vaughan when they were approached and said, hey, you know, here's some of these big questions that we have in life. You know, where did we come from? How did we get here? I love the one guy who's like, uh, you know, and there's almost a sense of like, uh, it's like a discombobulating question. Like you almost feel like not only do you think no one's ever going to ask you um, because it's kind of surprising you in that sense, but then when somebody finally does ask you, what do you say, right? And so depending on where you are in in this journey of life, I mean, you could be somebody who's been, you know, a churchgoer following Jesus for a long, long time, and yet there could already be this sense that uh, I'm not exactly sure what I'd say. Or maybe you're just, you know, here, you're visiting with us, and we're really glad that you are. You're maybe just checking Jesus out. You're not totally sure. Maybe you're comparing him with some other worldviews, some other gods, things like that. And yet, these are the big questions, right? And so, we're really excited, Vijay and I. My name is Dave, in case we haven't had a chance to meet yet. I'm on staff here, and I oversee our congregation in Bolton. And that's actually where Vijay is this morning. He's up in Bolton launching uh, this series because we do this tag team preaching thing. We've got to sort through uh, you know, a staggered teaching model. And, and we are starting this series, uh, Frequently Asked Questions, right? Jesus, world religions, and the questions that matter most. And if you were with us last week, then uh, you would have been able to hear uh, Vijay kind of get us started and say, well, what are we actually talking about when we talk about these big ideas? When we talk about these big questions, are we talking about religion? Are we talking about politics? Are we talking about, you know, just doctrine, making sure you've got the right points, uh, you know, checked off that you believe that? Are we talking about something different? And, and what he got to was this idea that we're actually talking about a person who's behind all of these questions. And he landed it on Jesus. And that's where we try to land all of our messages to say, yeah, we're, we're about Jesus in this place. And so um, when we come to these big questions, th- there might be a sense, even in my home group this last week, sorry if you're in my home group, I'm not going to tell any names or point any fingers, uh, but there was this sense, and maybe you had this feeling too, that these questions, you know, how, how, did, how did we get here? What is my purpose in life? Where do I go when we die? Things like that. Um, those are big questions, but you might not actually be asking those exact questions. And one thing we're talking about is like there's these, there's these questions behind the questions, right? 
And so when we ask this question, what is my purpose in life? That is a huge, existential, important question. We might not ask it quite that way, but we might say, well, why do I feel stuck right now? Like, why do I feel stuck in my job right now? Why do I feel like I'm not totally sure this is the right program for me? Right? Those are questions behind the question of trying to figure out what our purpose uh, might be. Or how about where do I go when we die? Or where do I go when I die? Where do you go when you die? Where does anybody go when anybody dies? Right? Maybe we don't ask those questions because it could be a little jarring. It's like, whoa. You know, but we do, ask, we do say things or think things like, uh, I love this life so much that I don't ever want to lose it. Or, or what would ever happen if I lost you know, a child? Would I ever be reunited with them? Would I ever have a chance to see a loved one again after whatever happens here? Like, those are the questions behind the questions, right? Or even this big question, what is truth? Is, is there one truth? Can there be multiple truths? How can I have any certainty that, that what I believe is, is right? Do I, can I even say that, that I've got the corner on the market with what I believe, or do I always have to leave a bit of a gap, an opening, uh, to allow any other idea to come in to actually form what truth may or may not be? Right? The questions behind the questions. And, and I find, in a lot of the conversations that I have, and even in my own life, there seems to be more of an emphasis on um, these questions of purpose. Right? Uh, should I stay in this school program? Should I start a business? Uh, should I bring kids into this world? I already have, but you know, maybe you're thinking, like, should we bring kids into this world? It's so broken. You know, what, what will I ever be able to raise them well? And, and we ask these questions of purpose. And I think that's a really important, again, existential question. Like, why do I exist? What, what am I doing here? But, but before we can get to that question or any of these other questions, we have to ask this bigger one. Um, how did we get here in the first place? Where, where did we actually come from? And I actually think that the question, where did we come from or how did we get here, is completely knit together with the question, what is my purpose in life? And so next week, Vijay is going to be talking about what is my purpose in life. But today, we're looking at this question, well, how did we get here in the first place? Like, did we end up here by accident? Or was it intentional? Were we placed here? Right? Was it the result of like some chaotic thing that happened and by coincidence, we ended up here? Or did somebody actually put us here? Right? I, I love, one, one of the guys in the video said, I think one thing that all uh, world religions or all worldview have in common is that there is a higher force. Did you remember when he said that? Did you catch that? And that's an interesting comment because I, that's not necessarily true, as we're going to see in just a moment here, right? It's not necessarily true that everyone believes there is a higher force or, or a lower force or a god or, or something like that. But maybe the question you ask, instead of how did we get here, you've perhaps thought, like, well, is there an intelligent designer? Is there a god? Is there this kind of force? That put us here, and, and if there is one of these things, does that force have anything to do with my life today? Does this God care about me? Is this God knowable? And so again, the questions behind the questions. And when we ask this question, how did we get here? There's like no shortage of, of answers, of, of, of ideas, of, of, of narratives, of, of origin stories, of creation myths, of, of explanations, theories about how we got here. And, and one way we can think about this is it actually fits under the banner of cosmology. Is anybody familiar with this idea? If we break it down really simply, right? Cosmology, cosmo, talking about the cosmos, the universe, ology, study, the things that we study. So all of it fits under the category of cosmology, which is asking the big question, where did the universe come from? And what's happening to it now? As it seems to be changing and evolving and shifting, what, what is that all about? That fits under cosmology. And then also what's included in this is like the fate of the universe. What's going to happen later? 
And so again, all of these ideas, all of these theories, all of these narratives, and perhaps you uh, come from a a bit of an atheistic background. Maybe you identify as an atheist, or you have a friend or a family member uh, who's an atheist, a coworker. And one thing we've got to do right from the beginning is we look at, you know, understanding where did the universe come from, what's going on now, and where is it heading. Uh, One of the things we need to think about when it comes to atheism is that atheism is not simply saying there is no God. As a matter of fact, a, a, a true atheist would never make the assertion with 100% there is no God. Rather, what a true atheist would say is that God is a delusion. And there's not enough evidence stacked up to give us reason to believe that there could be a God. It's, 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 it's subtle, but it's important. So Richard Dawkins, one of the leaders of this new atheist movement, he's a, an older British guy, he's a professor, has written lots on the subject. Even from the 70s, he was ahead of the curve in terms of what this new atheism is. New atheism is this idea where it's not just that I'm going to say uh, God doesn't exist, or I'm not just going to say God is a delusion. Uh, you know, in the past, there were people who would say, I'm atheistic, and I, just don't bother me with what you have to say. Like, I believe what I believe, you believe what you believe. This idea of new atheism that uh, Dawkins and others have kind of led the charge on, is like, I I believe that God is a delusion, and I'm going to make sure that you know you're stupid if you think that God is for real. There's a bit of a shift that's happened over the last, you know, 40 years or so in this line of thought. And so Richard Dawkins, one of the leaders in this movement, is asked the question, with what certainty can you say that there is no God? And his answer was, well, I don't want to put a number on it, but I guess I'd have to say something like 99%. I'm 99% sure that there's no God. And to which we could say, well, then you're not a true atheist, right? We just chill out a bit. Because actually what we know is that atheism is not making an assertion that there for sure is no God, but rather it's saying God is a delusion. There isn't enough evidence stacked up. And any reasonable atheist ought to be willing to look at whatever evidence is put forward to say, okay, how does this, even if I think it's an origin myth, even if I think there's just a theory going on here, what about this is credible? What about this stacks up? Let me look at it, just like any scientist would look at any type of evidence to to claim whether or not a theory is true. Otherwise, it's just hypothesis, right? And so uh, if you are atheistic or if there's somebody you know and you're having this conversation, then oftentimes uh, their view is, um, in terms of cosmology, their their view on the origin of the universe, how did we get here, is is rooted in the, the concept of the Big Bang Theory which is a huge thing. You could read all day on it. I could have read all day on it, but I didn't. Um, and, and you'll just really simply put, at one time in history, um, subatomic particles were put under such incredible heat and such incredible pressure that multiplication took happen, that there was this expansion that took place. And what we do now, so you will hear scientists say that the, the universe is somewhere around 13.8 billion years, give or take a few, right, um, years old. And one of the ways that they figure that out, we can say, well, how could anybody know that? Well, as we look at the continuing expansion of galaxies, right, there are always more and more galaxies expanding and expanding. They'll measure the rate at which those galaxies expand, and then they kind of track it back to 13. So it's not just, you know, silliness, making up numbers. They actually have a way of of thinking about this. They actually have metrics for this. And so the Big Bang Theory is not just an explanation or a theory on how we got here, but again, it's actually a cosmological and, and they would say evolutionary theory that every part of existence, human existence, animal existence, biodiversity, all these kinds of things all fit into where did we come from, how are we evolving now, and where are we going to end up one day. But perhaps you're not scientific in your thinking, and that's okay. 
Maybe you're a little bit more spiritual, a little bit more uh, tribal. Maybe you're a little bit more into uh, these kind of creation narratives. And so depending on your upbringing, perhaps you were raised in a Hindu home. And so uh, Hindus would say that at one point in time, there was this a gigantic being named Purusha, and he had uh, a thousand eyes and a thousand heads and a thousand eyes and arms. And, and he had these big, huge fingers that held on to the world. And then the gods actually decided that they wanted to sacrifice him. And when they sacrificed him and cut him into pieces, the various pieces of his body transformed into the elements of the universe, the land, people, animals, including the, 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 the caste system which exists in the Hindu society, right? And so what we have there is we have this story or this, this what, what we'll call, a, 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 we'll call a, a conflict narrative, right? So with atheism, with that scientific kind of background, we're almost looking at what we're calling a chaos narrative. How we got here is, is kind of the result of chaos and that something happened at just the right time. When we look at, you know, not just the Hindu uh, tradition, but as we look at, you know, tribalism, as we look at many other uh, uh, religions and, and cultures, we see that there's also this idea of a conflict. We are here as the result of a battle as a result of a war, as a result of conflict. And in a sense, we're like the aftermath. Our existence is like the aftermath of those things that took place, okay? Um, however, maybe you're not scientific, right? Maybe you're not, you know, religious. And, and by the way, I'm not trying to pick on any one person or any one group of people. At the same time, uh, by mentioning two or three, I also know that I'm leaving out potentially hundreds of thousands <laughs> of, of, of understandings and theories about how we got here. I'm just, just so we're all clear on that. But maybe you're not really scientific, and so this chaos narrative thing, you're not sure about that. Maybe you're, you haven't grown up in a religious, with a religious background, and so this conflict narrative doesn't really resonate with you. Um, so maybe you would say that you're actually agnostic. And so agnostic, I think, is another phrase that needs some help defining so we actually know what we're talking about, like atheism. Agnosticism is basically saying there could be a higher power, there could be an intelligent designer, um, there could be those things, but there's no way we'll ever know for sure. And so a true agnostic would say um, the only thing we can ever know for certain is that which is material, that which we can see, right? That's which, which we can put our hands on, that which we can look at, that which is, is tangible in a sense. So when it comes to theorizing about the creation of the universe, we run ourselves into a problem with an agnostic worldview because nobody was there at the beginning of the world, uh, at the beginning of creation, right? And so what that would say is if your worldview is, is agnostic, saying, well, I don't know and nobody really knows and how could we ever really know, then you're saying, well, the creation narrative there is that this is unknown, that this is unknowable. So we've got these stories of chaos, we've got these stories of conflict, and then we've got these stories of the unknown, and I find it very interesting how the scriptural perspective on all of this brings the whole conversation up. So when we look into the New Testament, the second part of the Bible, um, the part that talks about the early church, what the followers of Jesus had done after he lived and died and uh, resurrected and ascended into heaven. As we look at this, the New Testament writers had a really interesting way of, po- of, of answering this question. And so in Colossians, it says, in chapter one, Serena, thank you for reading this earlier. It says, the son is the image of the invisible God, <clears throat> the firstborn over all creation. For in him, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether the thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. So when we ask the question, where did we come from or how did we get here? The New Testament writers seem to pose this other question. It's a question behind the question. They're saying, it's actually more important that we see that there's a who behind all that has been created as opposed to just knowing how we were created. 
And that is actually part of the narrative of Scripture, part of the whole story of Scripture. And I love how the writer points out that he, so when it says the son, when it says he, this is part of a a whole introduction to this letter that the Apostle Paul is writing to a church in a place called Colossae. And, And he says he is the image of the invisible God. And so we can consider all day long. We can look at creationist theories. We can look at uh, creation myths. We can, look at, um, we can look at origin stories. We can look at evolutionary theories. We can talk about these things all day long, right? We could say, well, you know, uh, those who have a little bit more of an evolutionary worldview um, or subscribe to the Big Bang as being the cause for the universe, we could say, uh, you know, they put the existence of, of planet Earth of, uh, around six billion years ago. Uh, or maybe you're on another camp and you say, well, I don't think it's about 6 billion. I think it's more like eight or 10,000, depending on your reading of parts of Scripture and various uh, scholars and whatever you, you read on that, whatever, however you come to that decision, right? And, and we could talk about it being that long or that short or whatever it is, but what the New Testament writers are emphasizing is it's not about how long. It's not even necessarily about the how. It's about the who that's behind it. And when Paul, the writer here, says that he is the image of the invisible God, What he's saying is, God, in all of these questions we have about how did it happen, he became a person. God became flesh. God became a human in Jesus, walked on the earth, and became this historical figure. Became this one who there are so many accounts written, eyewitness accounts written about what he did while he was here. The things that he taught about how this world works and how God has set everything up to actually be. And so when he says he's the image of the invisible God, what he's saying is, well, we have all these questions about how did we get here and who did all this, but then we also have Jesus who's knowable. So really what I think scripture is saying and what I believe is that the closer we get to knowing Jesus, the closer we get to understanding the answer to the question, how did we get here in the first place? We take one step closer to Jesus. We take one step closer to understanding how we got here because Jesus was there. Jesus was the one who did this, right? Paul says all things were created in him and all things were created through him. And later on, he says all things were created for him. So the New Testament writers don't believe, didn't believe, we we shouldn't believe that Jesus is just some figure, one of the gods among many gods, one one of these people among all of these other leaders, you know, these thought leaders or opinion leaders. He's not one among the others. He's actually the first and the foremost And the language here says he's the firstborn of all creation. Well, we could be very literal about that and say, well, Jesus wasn't born first. He was born, you know, several thousand years into the existence of humanity. So that's wrong. And we say, well, no, because that's when he was born of a virgin and became man, became flesh, like put on flesh and became human. But Jesus has always been the most superior over all creation forever, all the way back. And all the way forward, Jesus is the first and the foremost. So you might be familiar with something um, called causation theory. Okay, so maybe you've heard something if you've gone through uh, any type of post-secondary education. It might even have shown up in your high schooling uh, or depending on the books you read. This idea of the cosmological argument. Okay, cosmology is, again, remember, the study of how we got here, what's going on, and where we're headed. So within the cosmological argument, there's this sense of um, that which starts has a starter. Okay, that which begins has a beginner. Um, that which is going has a force, something put it in motion. Okay, you with me on that? So that which begins has something that begins. The universe began, therefore the universe has a beginner is the really simple way of looking at the cosmological argument. And there's so much more uh, you can YouTube and just don't read the comments, but you can learn a lot on YouTube. Just don't read the comments uh, on that. Um, but that's really important because what we're being told by the passage here 
is that Jesus is the starter. Jesus is the beginner. Jesus is not, is it, Jesus rather is the one who caused it. He's not one who came along as a created being, but he is the one who has always been, who did create, who set it into motion. And more than that, he is the creator and the sustainer. Anything that continues to exist, Jesus continues to keep it existing. It's his breath in our lungs, right? Is what we sang earlier. And, and you know what I love about this? It's so fascinating. Is that these, these verses... Um, this portion, um, uh, these particular verses that I'm handling right now, um, were actually part of a hymn, a song that the early church would have sung on a regular basis. And you know why I love this? I love this for a whole bunch of reasons. Let me tell you them all. One of the reasons I love this is because the reason we come together as a congregation here, Upper Room in Vaughan, Upper Room in Bolton, the reason we start our services with singing, with, with a worship team, with, with one set of lyrics up there, in there's, even though there's a couple hundred of us here, is that there's something about it that unites us. Wherever we come from in all of our life, whatever messages we've heard, whatever lessons we've been taught, whatever doubts we've had all week long, we come in here and we start th- singing, you are indescribable, God. Yeah, that's right. I'm reminded, and like, you're indescribable to me, but you're also indescribable to her, and indescribable to her, and indescribable to him, and indescribable to this person. You're indescribable to all of us. And so as we sing these songs, we're actually united. We're reminded about the truth that we believe. And at the time that the Apostle Paul was writing this, he was actually in jail for a whole bunch of reasons. But one of the reasons he was in jail is because he kept saying, Jesus is not just one of these other gods. Jesus is the son of God. He is the only, he is the real God. That's why he was in jail. And teaching that began to take place was that Jesus is not the first and the foremost over all creation. He's not even the firstborn. Like pay attention to the timeline of history. He's maybe like an angel, but he's still a created being. He's not exactly like a human. Maybe he's a little bit higher because of the miracles he did and things like that. And so as these lies, as these false teachings crept in, the church's response was, let's unite ourselves by singing songs that remind us of who he is, right? Like I grew up in school singing the national anthem as the first thing we did every day. Why did we do that? No one ever explained it to me, but I think the reason we did that was to remind us where we were right? To remind us who we're a part of, that we're not just by ourselves in some little classroom in Scarborough, but we're actually a part of a huge entire nation of people that are aligned, right? That, that was the big idea behind it. And that's actually the same idea behind why we sing. We want to encounter God together. We want to proclaim these truths together. It's a hymn. It's a poem. Now, that could beg a very big question. How, where do I get the gall to suggest that we can use a poem or a song to say that this is true about Jesus. And if you're thinking that question, like join the club. Like I asked the question first, right? I have to think about these things first. VJ has to think about these things first. And so sometimes I get on edge. It's like, I don't want to ask that question because I don't know if I can find the right answer to that. You know, and some of you might be saying, well, how could you talk so long about cosmology, the beginning of the universe, how we got here, what we're doing here and where we're going to go. And you haven't even mentioned Genesis yet the beginning of the Bible. How could you possibly do all that? Well, I'm so glad you asked. Because whether or not you're a follower of Jesus, you got to ask the question, is it credible to use a poem instead of a historical document, 
instead of scientific instead of scientific evidence is it credible is it reasonable to use those things to explain how we got here and so those of you who perhaps grew up in a in a christian home or in a christian background you may have been taught all sorts of different things about how we got here. I was raised in the church, um, and one of the things I was taught was not only that God created, that in the beginning God created, but I was also taught that you are to believe that God did that in six 24-hour periods, six literal days, six literal 24-hour periods, and on the seventh day, as part of that literal week, he rested. And, and I kept using that word literal because that's what I was taught. This is not open to interpretation. This is, this is fact. This is exactly how it happened. And, and I was taught on top of that, the secondary thing, which was actually the real problem. The real problem was, if you don't believe that, then you actually have to question whether or not anything else you believe about Jesus is accurate. And so it's like this system, right? It's like this whole structure. If you don't have this part right, how could you possibly have that part right? Now, that raises a whole bunch of questions for me, but, you know, I want to go to Genesis this morning just for a few minutes to to see what's actually there. Genesis is this word that means beginning. It means origin. It means what happens. at The the first word's in in the book, in the beginning, right? So it tells us, you know, how the universe came to be, how the world came to be, how creation came to be. Uh, and it actually begins to tell the whole story of, of, of the relationship between God and, and humans and in the outset, the trajectory, the storyline of where humanity is going to head. All of it starts there. Now, Genesis wasn't necessarily the first book of the Bible that was ever read, but I find it, or that was ever written, rather, but I find it very helpful that they put it first in the collection of books that make up the Bible. There's all these books that make up the Bible. It's not just one big book. It's one big story, a narrative, and a combination of various stories, all uh, starting with Genesis. I find that very helpful. And, and so you might think, okay, based on, your, on, on how you were raised, we go to Genesis chapter 1, and that's where we can put our hands on this. We can say, yes, for sure, here's how we can know. However, we run into this little thing, and that is, it goes back and forth in terms of debate about whether or not Genesis chapter 1 and 2 is written in a historical fashion, or whether or not it's written in a poetic fashion. So when we start asking the question, you know, and I think that the biggest skeptics, to be honest, that I might have of saying that we can tell all these things about Jesus and creation through poetry in this. I find that the, the biggest skeptic, the biggest challenges I've run into in my own life are other followers of Jesus who have landed so strongly that they need to believe exactly what is right, that they push back and say, well, you can't say that Genesis 1 and 2 is poetic because if it is, then it jeopardizes everything. To which I raise the question, well, that doesn't jeopardize anything at all, but rather with anything that has been written down, we have to ask, what is it actually trying to tell us? What is it actually trying to do? What is it trying to tell? So let me read um, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 to 5. We're not going to read the whole thing because it's quite long, Genesis chapter 1. You're going to cover that in your home groups. You're going to read through that in your home groups. But uh, let me read this because what it does is it kind of gives us a bit of structure that the remainder of the chapter, the remainder of the creation narrative follows. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God said, God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, the darkness he called night, and there was was evening, and there was morning the first day. So again, we're asking as we read this, what is this actually trying to tell us? It's telling us what happened, it's telling us who made it happen, who, where, who is the cause, who is the starter. 
but it's not giving us exactly the specific details of how it all took place. And what I mean by that is, yes, it says that God spoke the universe into existence, but we have to take that by faith. We actually have to take a step and say, I believe that this is how God did it because no one was there. As a matter of fact, Moses, the one who wrote this down, wasn't there watching it on a big screen that say this is exactly, there was no live feed. God imparted this wisdom to him later and he wrote it down. And actually, Moses is telling, when he was writing this, Moses is telling of the creation account was actually used to encourage the Israelites who were being freed from slavery. And he was trying to say, you've been in slavery for all of these years. And the reason I'm telling you that God created you and that you were created on the sixth, the sixth day, that you're a part of this creation narrative is because while you've been in slavery, you've been completely robbed of your identity as being God's beloved people. And I want to show you how loved you are by putting this down in an order that will make sense of how you fit into the big picture of all that's going on, which is this idea of what's my purpose in life? Well, we fit into the big story of God, but that's next week. That's where he was writing it out of. So what can a poem do? What is a poem supposed to do? One thing we pick up on is there's repetition, right? God says, let there be. And every time he says, let there be, let there be light, let there be an expanse, let there be animals, let there be vegetation, let there be people. Every time he says, let there be, there is, there be. Let there be and there be. God does it. He says, let's start this thing, and he starts it. There it is. And at the end of each of these periods, he says, it was good, right? The second thing we see is that there's a sense of order. There's a sense of structure. There's light, there's sea and land, there's plants, there's fish and animals, right? We can pull these things out and we can say, okay, what was God doing? How was he doing? He was speaking and it pulls it out. Now, I don't want anybody to freak out about me or about any, you know, about VJ or about what we believe here. We are not at all, I am not questioning the validity of the Genesis account. What I don't want to do though, is make it say something that it doesn't necessarily say. And so what we pull out from this poem is a lot of important things. Just because it's poetic doesn't mean it's allegorical, for starters. Allegory being a story that's made up to teach some type of a moral truth. I don't believe that. I believe that this is poetic, but it's telling of an event that actually historically took place. Some have referred to Genesis chapter 1 and 2 as being poetical in the fact that we ought to pay attention to you know, the, the linguistic sense, or we need to study it as a literary structure and make, but, but I think what that does is that actually pulls us away because if you follow that line of thinking, then all you really want to do is get the specifics of how it happened. But what Genesis chapter one and two is, starting to, is trying to do is tell us that in the beginning there was God. There is this force. There is this intelligent designer. This passage, I don't think is trying to tell us how God created. It says that he spoke, but again, we take that by faith. It says, it's not trying to say, I don't think it's trying to say when God created. What it tells us is in the beginning. When was, what was that? When was that? In the beginning, right? We don't know. But at the beginning, this is what God did. And it doesn't tell us how long it took God to do this. Now, I don't want to cause a fight. Wherever you fall in this camp of believing, yes, it was six literal 24-hour periods, maybe that's where you land. Maybe you say, well, it's poetic, and so the idea of days can be interpreted a different way. God actually exists outside of the uh, confines of time and space. So what is time to God, right? Rather, I think that in this writing, as God gave this wisdom to Moses to write down, as he inspired him to do that, I actually think that God is lending himself to humans, helping us understand him by putting himself on our terms. You can believe that it's 24-hour periods, and, and I'll, I'll agree with you. You can believe that it's not, and that it might mean something else, and I'll, I'll agree with you. Why? Because this is not about making sure we agree and believe the exact right thing, but rather, it's 
asking us to see who is behind it, right? One of the ways I think about it is, well, I feel like creating the universe would be a lot of work. I, I really think that is true. And so if I had to do that, I, f- I think it would take me like at least one solid hard day's work, I think, you know? Um, and, and so that sounds like a silly thing to say, but and so we might think of God on human terms, right? And we say, well, you know, God, I mean, he spoke and there was light, but how long did that take? Was it like a loading bar that he had to wait for? You know, he ran to the microwave and got some popcorn while it was loading up. Like we, so again, maybe it is God just lending himself to us so we understand him and we aren't to get caught up on that. Rather, we see what is it trying to tell us? And again, who put us here is a more scriptural, more biblical kind of question than asking, how did we get here? So what does this tell us then, for sure? Outside of the literary structure and that kind of thing, what does it tell us for sure? One thing it shows us is that God is creative. There is nothing mundane or boring about creation. We, on our drive here this morning, saw the diversity and the color and the beauty of creation as the trees are beginning to change, right? And, and we could say, wow, those are amazing trees in the ecosystem and the roots and the bio. I don't even know the right word. Photosynthesis maybe is a part of that. I don't know how it works. And we could say, that's amazing. What an incredible tree. But God created things beautifully to not point to the tree, but to actually function like an arrow that points to him, the creator. Right? We've got fur and fish and, uh, fur, what am I trying to say? Fur and scales, right? And we've got feathers and we've got skin. We've got all of this diversity in, in the animal life, in animal world, right? And in, 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 in us, there's lightness and there's darkness, not skin color, though there is that. That's important, actually, for the creativity of God. You know that song by DC Talk? Let me just date myself, right? Where he talks, it's, anyways, um, I, got, I don't remember the name of it. It's called Beautiful People, I think is what it's called. Colored People. Colored People. You've got to look that song up because it talks about how God is a beautiful artist through the pigmentation in our skin. That was on WOW 98, for those of you who even know what I'm talking about. Have it in my card, believe it or not, the actual discs. Um, it tells us that he's creative, right? There's hard stuff and that there's rocks. There's soft stuff and that there's soil. There's things that are like plants that are totally 100% different than the snow. God is diverse, right? And there's even this idea, if you're into science, of fractals, right? The idea of a fractal is that the more you zoom in on a given subject, the more complex and the more diverse it gets. Some things, the more you zoom in on them, the more simplified they get. But what we are being told by BBC as they put the next series out on Netflix, right, as they do Planet Earth, is the deeper you dig into a particular topic, the more and more complex it ever becomes. And I can't wait till the BBC spends enough money to go to the deepest parts of the ocean where no one's been before to find the freakiest looking creature so we can say, God put that there for a reason. God is creative, which means that our understanding is not that God is one who created out of chaos but he's one who created creatively and with purpose. It tells us that God is intentional. There's nothing about the creation account as we look at the system and the structure of how he created all these things. We see that he actually created biodiversity. He created various species to rely on one another, to be interdependent, to function in relationship with each other. So there's nothing about how God created that's out of conflict. As a matter of fact, the way that God set up the world to run was in perfect harmony in perfect peace. The animals with the animals, the animals with the humans, the humans with the animals, and humans with God and God with humans. No conflict, no battle, no war. Intentionality. God is relational. It shows us that everything that was made by him 
relies on him. Jesus, the starter, Jesus, the creator, is also the sustainer. And it's not just that he is somebody out there who, you know, created the world and set it in motion and packed his bags and left, but rather he is the God who is saying, I want to be with you every step of the way. Is God become flesh? Jesus, Emmanuel. Tim Keller puts it this way. The creation narrative in the book of Genesis is unique among ancient accounts of origins. Many cultures had stories that depicted the beginning of the world and human history as the result of a struggle between warring cosmic forces. In the Babylonian creation story, the Enuma Elish, the god Marduk overcomes the goddess Tiamat and forges the world out of her remains. In this and similar accounts, the visible universe was an uneasy balance of powers in tension with one another. In the Bible, however, creation is not the result of a conflict, for God has no rivals. Indeed, all the powers and beings of heaven and earth are created by him and dependent on him. Creation, then, is not the aftermath of a battle, put, uh, of a battle, but the plan of a craftsman. God made the world not as a warrior digs a trench, but as an artist makes a masterpiece. So, how did we get here? Again, remembering that there's a who that put us here is a more real question than just understanding the how we got here. So if you're subscribing to a chaos narrative or a chaos theory of how we got here, you know, it's all by chance that this happened, that there just happened to be enough pressure, there just happened to be enough um, heat that that, those subatomic particles would explode. If that's, that's where you're coming from, then actually the way you need to interpret your own existence is that we're nothing more than the blip on the radar. You have no purpose other than happening to come along at one period of time and your purpose in life is to get one gene onto the next generation. And there's something about that doesn't satisfy us, right? And it leaves us in despair because it's like, well, if I'm just here as the result of a a chaotic accident or a chaotic episode that took place, um, then all I am is maybe an accident. And maybe it begs the question, does the universe know who I am or does the universe care who I am? And yet in the Genesis account, Jesus says... Jesus is telling us through all the scriptural narrative, he's saying, I made the universe with structure. There's a reason behind all of this. Everything has its purpose and everything has its place, including you and including me. So Jesus doesn't say you are born out of chaos. He says, no, you are born with meaning. And there's these conflict narratives, right? Which can lead us to think, well, the world is evil. The world is in conflict. There's really no way about this, which could actually lead us to believe uh, we can live however we want. I mean, there are battles going on in this world that, that we could never, that I could never stop, you know? And, and I kind of feel like I live in a doggy dog wild west kind of thing at work or at school, and everybody just fends and fights for themselves, and maybe I just accept that. And maybe, you know, I, I contribute to that problem, but really, uh, if we're all born out of a battle anyways, a cosmic war that took place, and we're just the collateral damage or the, the remnants of all that, then maybe this is what we're meant to be. But you know what? That doesn't satisfy us either, does it? Because there's something inside of us that sees injustice and says, that's not right. There's something inside of us that says it's not supposed to be that way. And so in the creation account, one of the things that Jesus says is, you're not born out of conflict. You're born out of love. And, and, and through me, you can find true shalom. True shalom is, is peace. 
is wholeness, is, is fulfillment, is completeness. And Jesus says, not only will you find that in me, but I will also work with you and work through you to help you be an agent of reconciliation in this world, to actually be part of the process of restoring this world back to the way it was meant to be. You're not born out of conflict. You're born with purpose. You're born with meaning. Maybe you are, again, agnostic, right? This idea that it's unknowable. Maybe there is, maybe there isn't, but we'll never know for sure. Let's not waste too much time obsessing over it, which, if you follow the line of thinking, tells us that we don't matter. The universe doesn't know you, like I said. The universe doesn't care about you. And this will believe, this could lead you to believe that then we're just here all on our own. That we've just, you know, God or the universe, the power, the intelligence, whatever, created us, put us here, here we are. We've got to figure out life all on our own, which could actually leave us feeling really hopeless because oftentimes we find ourselves saying, well, where do I go next? What am I supposed to be doing in this life? And in the creation narrative, Jesus is saying, no, you're not just left here. Actually, the, the thrust of the main point, the exclamation mark on the story, on the creation story is that God is relational and that he creates man and woman. And he says, this is very good. Later on in Genesis, we see that God walked with them in the garden like one person walks with another person. It's about relationship. It's about knowing him. It's about Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God with us, coming to earth and showing us that it's not invisible. He's actually very, very knowable. And so I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up because I I feel and I think and I believe that the only real response we can go to in this moment is worship. And you might have a lot of questions in your mind right now. You might be asking, well, I don't know if I'm going to, if I buy this, I don't know if I'm going to believe this. And, and, and I don't know, but, but what I'm pleading with you to do is please process this. Please pray through this. Please think through this. Please reflect on this. Maybe inside of you, you're feeling this built up, just, um, you're just inspired. You're feeling passionate. You're saying, yes, that's my God. Yes, now I have some way of thinking about this to explain it to a family member or a friend who doesn't believe, but the first thing you ought to be sensing is an overwhelming desire to worship, to praise him as one voice, to say, God, these are the things we know and believe about you. Make it even more true. God, we do thank you for who you are, for what you've done. God, thank you for making it so clear in the way that you gave us the gift of Scripture. As we read it to see how did all this come to be, actually front and center the whole way through is you saying, hey, if you take one step closer to me, then you'll get one step closer to understanding how all this came to be. Because you, the who, is so much more important than having every single detail correct about how it all took place. Jesus, we thank you for coming and living among us, for being a real human, for being the image of the invisible God, for showing us all of the answers to what we think God is like, the way that you lived, the things that you did, the ways that you taught, the things you taught, all of that shows us this is who God is because you are God. And so we praise you and we worship you and we say you are the one who created. You are the starter. You are the cause. And you are the sustainer. So for all of us in this room today, Jesus, I pray that we would come to this point of saying, yeah, I believe you. Maybe we have to be like the ones in Scripture who say, Jesus, I believe, but help me in the areas where I don't believe. I believe, but help my unbelief. Build that up within us, God. Give us courage. Give us faith. Give us trust. So as we worship now, we pray that all of this would just honor you and glorify you 
And that as we sing to you, you would work in us to remind us and unite us that we are serving and loving and worshiping the true God, the creator and sustainer of the universe. In your name, Jesus, amen.